Welcome to Frost Sessions, the Frost School of Music's official podcast. On this week's episode, we present the Henry Mancini Institute artistic director and legendary composer and band leader, Maria Schneider. She's joined by current student, Michael Dudley. Maria and Michael will explore the path it takes to create a successful album and talk about Maria's personal experience breaking through the noise. Listen in on the conversation about jazz, inspiration, and even birds. Thank you so much for joining us. And remember to stay tuned to Frost Sessions. Thanks so much for tuning in. For those of you tuning in, I'm Michael Dudley, and I'm a current uh, third year DMA student at Frost, and I'm sitting here with Maria Schneider. So. Yes, I'm Maria Schneider, and I am, gosh, what is my title again at the Mancini Institute? I think it's artistic director. Thank you. <laughs> hey, so I'm a jazz composer and um, band leader, I guess. You would say a lot of different hats. All around amazing person, human being. Wow. Likewise about you. And it's great to see you again. Last time, I guess, you were down here was in late was it late January, early February? Yeah, and it seems like we're going to do it again in October, so we're okay. not going to let this COVID thing take us down. Yeah, they, uh, they've been pretty, pretty serious here as far as like all the precautions, at least at Frost. I mean, we have to make sure that we can only play maybe 30 minutes, and then we have to be out of the room for the filters to work for 20 mm -hmm. minutes, so... Nice. It's kind of challenging, you know, <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I, I think it seems like they've been doing the best that they can. So I'm sure they are They're good people down there. So, but I'm, I'm so thrilled to be talking to you again, especially um, now that uh, your album has been released and I'm, I'm so I, I was listening to this the other day and I was like, wow, this is, it's, it's really great. Um, and I ordered it. It's funny. I ordered it um, when I was in Colorado uh, because I was at a music camp there that somehow was still happening and um, it actually got sent there. So oh. yeah, they had to send it from, from the hotel or, or whatever back to my place and then I was moving so it was just kind of like but finally I got it I was able to check it out and I have the I went on the the site and everything and it's 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 really amazing so thank you thank you yeah um the uh the whole model of putting this album out as you know now from going in there is the idea that we're not just selling music but we're sharing the whole creative process behind the music and really trying to bring people in to um, enjoy all the levels of making music and to understand it. And um, initially, I think the idea was really to get beyond the file sharing, which is just about getting music, but creating deeper relationships with fans. Um, for me, it's become that and even more, my site, you know, these projects I've done over the years have become a tremendous archive. I mean, we tend to think we're going to be this age forever, but I can attest we started our first artist share project in 2003. How old were you in 2003? I was nine years old. <laughs> okay, so that, it's a long time ago. And, and as much as you looked a lot younger when you were nine, 
<laughs> we all looked a lot younger in 2003 too. So it's, it's fun to go back and hear how I thought about music, what I was thinking about, what my concerns were, and just to look at us, you know, what we looked like. Mm -hmm. So it's been really uh, a fun way to work. It's a lot of work um, documenting the whole process and everything, but it makes for a kind of lifelong fan relationships. And a lot of people come back again and again. And my warehouse, by the way, is in Denver, Colorado. So it didn't have to travel too far to you <laughs> before then it went to Miami. Yeah, I, I was in Aspen. So it was like only a couple hours drive. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so how do you, I, I, looking on the website, you know, you have some things like some uh, parts of your scores and, and, and other things like that up there. How do you decide what what goes on on artist share and um how do you decide what doesn't i guess in terms of like it seems like it's a very real kind of experience you know for instance um one of the videos that i ha was checking out was um an interview a short little interview with steve wilson um and he was talking about uh um the various solos that he had on this record and towards the end of the clip there was a plane that was flying overhead and he said oh i guess that's the end of the <laughs> the interview yeah <laughs> it seems like it doesn't seem like some kind of reality television show or something and i think that's what i like the most about it is that it really does make me feel like i'm a part of that experience so. well yeah and when i talk a lot of so um when we're talking about all the different things that i sell so the, I think the main thing for every artist is to figure out what things they have of value to share. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's, you know, it's the music for people to listen to, but it's also the scores and parts for groups to play. And then it's study scores for composers to check out. And so when thinking about how to enhance those experiences um, beyond just the score, um, the ideas that I had was to talk about what went into writing that music. So anytime somebody buys a study score on my site, they can hear me sit and talk about composing it. And some of what I talk about is critical of myself. I remember when I did my first artist share project, um, I was really in a crisis writing. I think it was the piece concert in the garden. And I was saying how I just felt like, Oh my God, I'm never going to come up with anything. And, you know, it was sort of the I suck kind of thing. And my father watched it and dad used to call me Pinky. Everybody in my hometown called me Pinky. That was my name. And he said, Jesus Christ, Pinky, why would anybody want to buy this album? You're telling them it's horse you know? <laughs> and, and I said, but dad, you know, I'm trying to share the creative process. Yeah, but you're telling them it's you know? So anyway, I, I uh, you know, Took it to heart a little bit, but you know, I don't want to candy coat what the creative process is. You know, it's hard. And one day when things are going well, you feel some days like you're, wow, I'm a genius. And then the next day, I am such an idiot. I'm a, I know, I'm a know nothing person, you know, I'm, I'm worthless. And I think every musician vacillates between those, you know, the pendulum swings and is rarely right in the middle. So I think, you know, I try to just kind of share what, what is the truth. 
But, you know, if there's really ugly moments, okay, maybe I don't show those. Sure, sure. Um, what, one of the scores that I, or that I was looking at um, earlier today, there was something that I thought was really interesting. It looked like some kind of time stamp or something, or, or in terms of, um, it seemed like there was some kind of recording aspect to it in terms of your sketches. Um, isn't oh. that, it almost looked like some kind of mathematic formula or something like that. I just, Do you remember which piece it was? I think it was, it might not have been for a particular piece. I think it was just for one of the, um, one of the additional sketches for the, as part of the album uh, download package. But um, it, it had like different. Uh, was it a music, a music sketch, like a score so sketch? Had, it said, like I'm looking at right now, there's a date that says February 4th rehearsal after slap that bass. Oh, okay. So yeah. So one of the things I did on this album, um, yeah, if I remember f February 4th, we had a, um, a, like a experimentation session. So one, one of the things I did on this album that was inspired after I worked with David Bowie um, because David wanted to really experiment. And I said, David, I'm just not comfortable going into the studio with this. I have no idea what we have, you know, and he had this wonderful idea. If the plane goes down, we all walk away, whatever, you know, but I, I'm like, I got my ego here, you know, and so we had these kind of experimentation sessions with the rhythm section and Donnie McCaslin and Ryan Keberly was playing trombone and David was there and Tony Visconti, um, his producer and we just played around and, and I loved it so much because I learned so much in those sessions that didn't have the whole band there. Mm. And we could just play and try things and try the form and see, and you know, as a writer, one of the hardest things to figure out is how long events should happen before it feels like it needs to move on or how long does something need to build? How long should a solo section be? And so um, I decided to start having experimentation sessions and so i recorded the whole thing and we did things where i had jay anderson playing the bass with a stick and doing like glisten kind of you know weird things and jonathan blake on the water phone and and so then i listened to those recording sessions and then started marking down the places that were interesting and transcribing and saying wow. okay i could make something out of this and that and it it kind of you know I didn't use that much stuff from it, but I used some and it really helped me weed out the ideas also that just didn't work, you know, or at least not for this piece. So Great. yeah, that's probably what that was. It, it seems like um, this music or the album and, you know, with all the tracks, you know, this is kind of a, um, a statement that you've been meaning to make musically for a long time, uh, given, you know, some of the um, dialogue, well, I would say dialogue, but it doesn't seem like you're getting much of a response from some <laughs> companies, you know. Um, so I guess I'd be interested to hear about that. I mean, I'm sure that probably was a lot of weight that you 
probably felt because you're like, oh, I want to say something that's, that's, you know, really meaningful and, um, but still gets my point across, you know. So, so here's something that I don't know how you work. So it'd be interesting to turn this around on you. Um, but when I sit down to write, I almost never have an agenda of something I want to write about. Like, oh, it'd be interesting to make a piece about this thing. Almost every time I've tried to do that, it, whatever I've done has felt really kind of forced and wooden. Um, usually when I sit down to write, I just sit down looking for sound, you know, something that I like, something that has a personality where I'm like, oh, that's cool. Oh, man, you know, and then I start playing around with it and I, I improvise with it maybe. And, and a lot of times that sound pulls up something from my conscience, you know, like a, a picture, a story, a, a memory, a thing. You know, in the case of Data Lords, you know, it was like this sort of dismal thing I created on the bottom and I started thinking about, you know, artificial intelligence and this whole thing I'd been reading about singularity. And before I knew it, I was really getting into it. And I'm like, oh my God, this is going to be called Data Lords, you know? So it's sort of like the music sort of pulls something out. I've been trying to describe it to people because everybody keeps asking me, how did you come up with this? And I said, this is more... This album is more like when you have a child that's going through a psychological difficult time mm. and the psychologist gives them a pen and paper and says, here, draw. And then they look at what the child's drawing and they say, wow, this child's mother is really doing a number on it. Or this child is really having father issues or there might be violence going on in this home or whatever it is that is coming out in those pictures. And I feel like what's been coming out in the music is a lot of my, what I've been writing about in words, the advocacy I've been doing, talking about big data and talking about musicians' rights and copyright and the inundation of, of information and what that's doing to our minds. And, and so it was just sort of like the music just called that out. And then at the same time, and, I, and still, I wasn't really conscious of it. I was just sort of enjoying writing these pieces. They sort of felt like a, a purge, you know? <laughs> and then in between, I was writing these other pieces that were like about, you know, a Japanese Zen garden. And, you know, it's, it was sort of like my palate cleansers in between the anger, you know? And in the end, I, I thought, like all of my albums, most of my albums have just been a representation of music that I wrote in that period. You know, it's just Evanescence was the music I wrote up to 1992. You know, Coming About was more commissions and things I wrote up to 1995 or whatever. Then came Ala Grass, and that music is kind of disparate because in there I visited Brazil for the first time and that changed my life. My music became less muscly and I was like, wow, it's okay to put joy and beauty into, into jazz. It doesn't have to be d dark all the time, you know, and so that music opened up and then my next albums had that influence and then a more natureful thing that came in as I started spending more time birding and in the country. So I can just look at my records and just say, oh, I see what I was doing in my life after the fact. So this record ended up expressing the complexity, I think, of most humans trying to be human 
which we as humans are connected to the natural world. We are organic, you know, we have brains and who knows how different we are even than from a plant, mm -hmm. you know? And, but we're creating this world of artificiality in terms of um, mind and, and, and also it's largely based on greed from companies that want to become hugely powerful and wealthy. And mm -hmm. what is that do? What is this doing to us? And that's to me what the music is saying. These are two parts of my life that I'm having a hard time um, living with, you know, the two sides. Yeah, I, I remember when I first uh, put the CD to listen to in my car because my computer doesn't have the CD drive anymore. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. Yeah, the first track, um, A World Lost, and I, it really made me, for me, my impression of it was just, you know, this is where we find ourselves, but we have to keep going, you know, and, and it's, it seems like it's hard, especially now, it's so much, I mean, we're talking to each other, you know, over who knows however many miles, and um, we both have our earbuds in and everything, and, and yet, we're still trying to make these human connections mm -hmm. uh, that seem as though they still can, you know, they still can be made over these great distances. Um, but it's, yeah, it's definitely hard to find that balance. Oh, excuse me, sorry. Yeah, in writing that piece, um, thinking, speaking of the inundation of stuff, you know, in writing that piece, actually, it's a perfect moment to talk about that um, because my life has straddled both of these realms you know you're young enough that you're kind of came up into this new realm mostly mm -hmm. um but i so much remember when i was kid a kid these long expanses of time and space and in college where there was just if you weren't in the practice room and you weren't at dinner with your friends you were in your room either listening to music or studying for a test or something. Mm -hmm. We didn't even have telephones in our dorm rooms. There was one payphone at the end of the hallway, you know? And so the, the amount of time that we had to think and to ponder and to question and, you know, maybe overthink, you know, who knows, but the, or just to daydream and to fantasize was so astounding the difference between now and I do worry that this us being open in every moment to be distracted it makes it so easy that when you have uncomfortable space in your life you know it's like oh my gosh okay let me check my text messages okay oh wow look at it now I'm distracted and I don't have to face the space Mm. But a lot of amazing things happen when you have to face the space and the silence. And um, how do we get back to that? Because I think that's an important part, that silence and that space is an important part of existence. And I think it's very important for creativity too. So um, I think it's a challenge for all of us. You know, it's not like I'm immune to uh, doing text messaging all the time because I'm conscious about this. I'm partly conscious about it because I struggle with it and feel like I'm being 
made addicted to it and I don't like it. I don't like what it's doing to me if I remember how things were. Mm. You said you were getting into, you said birding or bird watching? So birding, yeah. More about that, please. Oh my gosh, well, I'm really into birds, these wonderful bird cards. Let's see, well, when I was a kid, we had, I'm just pull out my postcards here. We had a, a pet goose, because it, its wing had been broken and my mom uh, repaired wings of birds and this little baby gosling became a goose and she lived in our house, had a diaper. And, you know, I just, I just love birds. You know, we were um, prairie landscape, so we had a lot of prairie birds, yellow-headed blackbirds, um, uh, bobolinks, western meadowlark, um, and then some of the birds, well, the pelican and, you know, all sorts of birds. And I, I've been into birds ever since I was a kid, especially it happened one day we heard this big bang on our window and this bird died. And I went out and got it and it had this beautiful long tail with spots. And so my mom invited over this older man who um, was the kind of the bird specialist in my hometown. His name was Mort Smith. And so he drove up to the house and he had had polio. His legs were in these big braces and he had little wire spectacles and he, he looked very um, professorial or, you know, is that the word? I don't know, like a professor. He, he looked, he was amazing. And he came in and he said, well, that's a black-billed cuckoo. And, and I was like so excited by this bird. And what's amazing is he saw me getting excited. And I don't know, I was maybe five or six or something. No, I was young. I know it was young because in first grade, I already wanted to be an ornithologist. So I was probably about five. Oh, wow. And um, and so then came Christmas time, where in all across the country they do what's called the Audubon bird count, where people go out and count every bird they can see, so that they can do studies on you know species that are dwindling and whatever. And so he brought me out on an Audubon bird count, you know, driving around. It was freezing. I remember it was like twenty below zero, and there was barely a bird out. But it was so exciting going on a bird expedition with this old man. And it made me realize now, last year, I, or this, was it this year? Last year, I became an NEA jazz master. And we had to give a speech. And I gave mine about mentorship. And I talked about him, Mort Smith, and other people when I was young, these older people that... Um, just with a small gesture like that, taking me on a bird count, made me feel adult, made me feel um, excited about something like birds. You know, he gave me a little bit of his wisdom. It never left me, you know? Yes, I probably liked birds maybe a little more than your average kid would have, but he recognized it and he gave me that moment, you know? And that moment lasted with me all these years, long after he's gone, I can look at him and say, Mort Smith changed my life, you know? And, and it's been quite a powerful thing to look at how many young people in this country whose lives could be changed with somebody that just recognizes a little thing and says, hey, I'm gonna take you to see that or see what, you know, a concert is or 
what it is to go bird watching or fishing or or looking at trees or plants or mm -hmm. anything that just sparks the joy of all these things we have around us you know they make life meaningful they give a reason to want to make music you know to me um making music isn't really about making music it's more um I get more excited when the music attaches to something in my life. And then I feel like, Ooh, I'm going to bring that thing to, to the sensory of other people through the music. That's, that's when I get excited. How do you write music? Cause you're such a beautiful writer. Oh, thank and, you. and what, and what, what do you, what motivates you? Because we're all different. Well, um, to be, to be quite honest, at least within the past, couple of months or so you know it's been a very a pretty trying time for me and so every single time like usually in the evening I would sit down at my computer and I have a little because um, I didn't have a keyboard with me at the place where I was staying for the past couple of months because um, I basically evacuated from <laughs> Miami once the um, pandemic officially was recognized here and um, I would just record things and then in a somewhat similar process, trying to take them down um, and, and write them down. And so I guess in a way I, and then I, I have also been thinking about like wh when I'm listening to this piece, what kind of feelings does it evoke um, and what was I trying to say, if anything, here? Because sometimes I feel like some of the music that I have made doesn't necessarily, it's just like, oh, well, I was, I was. It's just music. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for me too. Not every piece has a story or, you know, attaches itself to some experience. Sometimes it's just music you like. Yeah, so that's, that's kind of how I, I think I'm, I'm with you in that if I try and write a song or I have an idea and I'm like, okay, I want to, I immediately want to try and figure out how I can distill this into, into some kind of musical experience. It doesn't really go very well, or at least I don't really, I don't think I can convey exactly what I intend. Usually when it comes out naturally, it's, it's, it's a lot more effective. So, so let me ask you something because this is something I've been thinking about. Um, uh, in talking with a friend is the motivation to make music. I, I remember years ago, I gave um, the commencement address at Eastman and School of Music. And I said, and I started out by saying, you've all studied to become healers. That I think that that music is a healing art. And um, I think part of the reason for me, it's, it, it's sort of cathartic to have these feelings of real anger about big data companies and what they're doing to us and our youth and everything. And when I can make music about it and even put in a little bit of humor, like taps and don't be evil or whatever this, you know, or just going over the top, like I did in data Lords, there's something about it for me that just feels cathartic and, and it feels like a sort of alchemy that turns all that nastiness into this thing that's beautiful in a way, or hopefully. Mm -hmm. And, I'm just wondering, and I, I know when I was a child, when things were 
difficult at home and intense, which they were sometimes. And for me, music was that thing to get lost in. And, and I think it was a thing that I healed myself emotionally a lot by muse, being involved with music. And do you feel that for yourself? Definitely. I, I think it's been a recent kind of discovery for me in terms of how exactly that process works for me. Um, because for a long time, you know, I had seen people who I felt like, um, I don't want to say had an easier time with that because I feel like that means that they might have had, you know, we never know exactly what people are dealing with. Um, exactly. Yeah. And so I, I, and myself included. And so I thought like, well, it doesn't seem like I'm able to express myself, but there are multiple ways of expressing oneself through music. And I think that not everyone, um, you know, some ways work better for people than others. And I feel like for me in particular, among other things, writing, I think is something that I've kind of come to more so than playing, but I still enjoy playing too. You know, they're um, especially um, playing people's music like yours and playing, you know, um, Miho Hazama was here. And so we got to play mm -hmm. some of her stuff and it's incredibly beautiful. So, yeah, I think it's definitely been a healing experience for me. And I think the less expectations I have going into whatever session, the, the freer, you know, it, it allows me to become, you know, towards the end of it. And so um, I guess the thing that I've learned is that no matter what I'm sitting down for, and that, I'm not a person who's had to really deal with a lot of deadlines, so maybe this would change at some point, but um, as long as I don't really expect, you know, anything to come from the process, you know, and instead of just grateful for the process itself, it seems like it's really a great experience for me, so. Wonderful. Yeah, I think that um, the, the, sort of almost physical, mental, emotional space that opens up when you're working on music and writing music. Sometimes for me, it just, when it's going really well or when I'm really in that zone, it just feels like the world becomes so expansive and the world of dreams and possibilities and things, it's so big compared to life, which many times feels full of limitations, you know? But it's, it's almost like out of body, I think, you know, when you get into that place and you feel that, that world of that world that we connect with because of music, um, it's almost like it goes on a limitless boundary, some other realm. And, and I believe that's why, why music connects so much to people, because when you go into that space and you find that sound, you know, you're in that delightful, open, expansive place and you find the sounds you get excited about. Those sounds have something magical in them because of the, the place that you, the internal world, that spiritual space or whatever you want to call it, um, meditative or creative or whatever. I think they're all similar um, that when you go there and you, 
bring out something and you have the trace of the encounter with that space comes through the music. And I think that when that, then that sound touches other people, it connects them to that space that's kind of a, a unified space that we all have. And I think there's something very, very mystical in there and that we feel it even as children, we don't see it that way, or maybe we all see it differently anyway, but that it's a very, very powerful thing. I, th I think that this country and the whole world does a real disservice to the potential of young people by, I think music should be an option for every single child, just for their own healing and expression, not to become professional musicians, what would we do with that many professional musicians? But, you know, just the joy of, of creating, expressing, it's, it's powerful. Yeah, I, I'm definitely an advocate for, well, at least in terms of whenever I have the chance to say something on, in support of um, school music programs, particularly just school band programs. I went to public high school, you know, when, to, was in the band, the marching band and everything. And um, I feel like so many of my friends, you know, who are doing a vast, you know, array of different things now, um, some of them having nothing to do with music. I feel like they're, all of our lives were enriched by that experience. Um, and it seems like it's something that is unfortunately, well, I noticed that even as I was going through school, I mean, we had to battle to, have the levies, you know, passed so that they would fund the programs and some of our teachers ended up having to leave. And so I, I hope that we can, you know, people can understand that we need to kind of bring those back, you know, yeah. to, to full strength. So, yeah, um, I agree. There was something I was, I was thinking of asking you. Oh, you said, uh, so you mentioned don't be evil and, and data lords in terms of being just completely over the top. When I listen to don't be evil, I started kind of laughing a little bit because <laughs> it just seems so incredibly absurd. Mm -hmm. And and then I started to realize, and then also there's just like this underlying darkness to it as well. And so I guess... If I were to have a question for you, it'd be kind of, how did you, you know, was it difficult to combine those two things musically? <laughs> you know, it seemed, was there a lot of trial and error with that or? or... It was a lot happens for me in rehearsal. I was, I, I, you've maybe heard me talk about this at Miami, but to me, a really important aspect of composing is getting your rehearsal chops together. And a lot of that is about just being able to get in this frame of mind where you can separate yourself from the, the kind of explosive feeling of hearing something for the first time, whether it's self-loathing or just loving it because you're so excited to hear something you wrote, you know? if you can separate yourself from the emotion and just try to listen to it in a very kind of, dry methodical sense and say, okay, what could make this better? What is missing? You know, and what I felt when I first heard that piece was 
I don't want this music to be overly dour and dark and self-serious. I want it to have a little bit of cheekiness, a little bit of humor, a little bit of, and so a huge thing that helped that piece in that way was throwing the vibrato on the trumpets. It's like, because when they played it just straight, I was just like, this isn't what I'm hearing. And then it's like, okay, what was I hearing that would give that a different feeling? And it was vibrato. And, you know, I kept saying, no, no more vibrato, more, you know, like make it really like ghoulish, you know? And so, um, you know, we did that later on in the piece. There was in the big ensemble at the end, there's these kind of big chords that would hit kind of in typical big band chords, bump, and it just felt too all of a sudden like a big band you know so i started having some trombones just play like a like a tremolo kind of bow you know on certain notes just to give a a kind of a wildness unhinged you know because i wanted the music to feel unhinged in a fun way not like i'm unhinged <laughs> you know what i mean um that that it's consciously unhinged, not that I'm just like indulging in this darkness <laughs> and anger and everything. And so, um, yeah, the pieces, uh, CQ also has some of that. CQ was the one piece on that album where I had the idea to write something and it wasn't even my idea. Talk about artist share. I was holding up a picture, I don't have it here, but a picture of um, my family home and there were these tall radio towers. And then this guy picked up on the fact that, you know, my dad was a ham radio operator. And then, you know, we got talking and he was, this guy said, you know, Morse code, which hams all used, was the first binary language, like ones and zeros. And the whole idea with, with um, ham radio was connecting with the world. But there was a code of ethics. You couldn't do business. You couldn't use people for business, which is what the internet seems to be mostly about. Even Facebook, which is supposed to be social. Oh my God, they're always grabbing our data and using us and manipulating us and everything. Um, there was a code of ethics, you know. Um, and then you also had to have a license. And then, and then there, was a to there was total transparency that you always had to say, um, if I was, if like my dad would say, CQ, CQ, this is W0ABF. And then somebody would have your license. They could write it down and they could look, see who you were, where you were from, mm -hmm. you know, they could look it up. I guess not on the internet. I don't know how they looked it up. <laughs> anyway, um, but that piece then I set out to write Morse code into all the rhythms. And that was like a whole kind of other process. But I, I tried to make that kind of fun too, you know? I don't know. I, I don't know if I succeeded in the fun part, but I tried because it was pretty dark, it was pretty dark music. Um, oh, so I, now I remember what I was gonna ask you about before. So you had talked about um, kind of the ways in which music, you know, can form these connections and allow us access to this this different place right so do you think that that happens um 
across different forms of art. For instance, um, your your song or piece stone song. Um, I I remember the you you talked a little bit about Stony before, um, and uh, I was just I guess I wanted to hear more about that, um, especially as someone who's trying to delve into other forms of art. I told you, or you heard on the HMI meeting that I'm kind of getting into photography a little bit, and I want to see, I guess I'm interested in exploring how that might inform my, my musicality, so. I think it will without you even knowing how it does, and that'll probably be the most, I mean, you might come up with very specific conscious ways of like, oh, this relates to this, and I want to explore that. But I also believe that um, just through the, um, the eye, you know, being connected through the vision and what photography can do, it will come into your music. Um, I don't know if I've talked about it when you were there. I, I did a thing years ago at the school about this book called The Art Spirit. I wonder if I have my copy right here. Let me just look. If I do, I'll show it to you. Yes, hold on a second. Give me one sec. Okay. You will know how important this, music, this book is to me when you see how many pages I've marked in it. Look at that. Wow. That's crazy, right? Yeah. So this book is um, by Robert Henry. Okay. Um, or, or you could say Robert, I, I feel like saying Robert Henri, but they say Henry. And he was a great painter in a school of art called the Ashcan School, hmm. and, um, which was a New York school. And then he was a teacher. And that's one of his paintings. And, and I think a lot of the paintings were, you know, family life or just human life in New York. And but he was really renowned as a teacher. And these are his teachings. And they are so unbelievably applicable to music. Like, um, you know, things, things talking about background and foreground. So that in the painting, the background is what you see of the background when you're focused on the foreground. So if you're focused on me, you're sort of seeing this thing in the background, but you're not so conscious of it. Whereas, you know, and in painting, you can bring that background forward to be on an equal level with it. And same thing in photography, widen the aperture, the mm. background gets blurry, right? Mm -hmm. Tighten the aperture, everything becomes in, in focus and it has a different effect. Music is the same way. You have a soloist or an idea in front. How in front do you want that to be? Or do you want it to be connected going neck and neck with things, you know? And so for me, I think visually all the time about music. I like to think, of, I connect music to dance. When, and I was a lousy dancer, but I danced when I was a kid. And I think it affects my, my music to this day. Um, so I think that you will love this book, by the way, if you get this. It's, to me, it's the greatest book on music ever written, not about music. And I think that um, through your photography, your music will only become bigger, you know? I don't think we necessarily become great musicians just by practicing all the time. I think sometimes 
this idea that we have to always be pushing, 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 practicing. To me, to be a great musician, you have to live a life, you know, a broad life. And all that stuff, it comes into your music and it makes you, you and me, me, you know, and each person, that's what makes every person so individual. But all, if all you're doing is practicing those same scales that everybody else is practicing, you're all just going to become different levels of playing those same scales. Mm-hmm. In the end, it has to, I think music is at its best when it's, I don't know, when it's, when it's influenced by a broader life. In this, in, just, one th- just one thing, in the same way when we're little kids and we're playing music, you know, we're playing music, but we don't have a lot of tools yet, but it can be so expressive because we're expressing either the joy or the misery of life, whatever it might be, you know. I was just going to say, speaking of influences, um, some of the pieces, you know, until a certain point, I forget which one it was, but it might have been, it might have been Sputnik. Um, at the beginning, you know, had you not necessarily known um, this particular album and that it was from, I'm trying to figure out how to say this because recently I've been trying to get away from the idea of genre anyhow. Mm-hmm. Um, but listening to some of the uh, pieces on this album and a lot of your albums in the past as well, you wouldn't necessarily think of them as being jazz records, you know, and I'm sure you've heard this a lot and been asked this so many times. So I guess how, who do you think your influences were um, in areas outside of what we have typically, you know, referred to as jazz music? Well, I think that, um, starting out from the very beginning again it's like the the child influence so that my piano teacher um she had so you know i'm from this very small farm town in winter minnesota but this woman she was really a world-class player stride pianist from chicago and she moved to windham only because her she had a son and a daughter and her husband her second husband who she loved like crazy and he was a jazz pianist and he and the son died in one month and her only living family was this daughter who had married a chiropractor in Wyndham so she came to Wyndham Mm -hmm. and I heard her play I wanted that I was like that's it you know and um, she there was so much joy in her music even though she had suffered so when she played piano the room lit up and she lit up and she smiled and she laughed and she was just so joyful. And every lesson, she started teaching theory from the very beginning and every lesson was part classical and part playing standards. Mm. And we analyzed them both the same. And so I never really grew up with this feeling of genre, you know, I mean, and she didn't even say now we're gonna play classical now we're going to play something called stride. You no, know, it was like, oh, let's work on this Cole Porter tune. And now let's work on this Chopin, you know? And, and so I grew up like that, loving all those different things. And I didn't 
have a feeling that Gershwin wasn't as wonderful as Ravel or something, or, you know, or that it was less somehow, or that, you know, um, pop music and the fifth dimension somehow wasn't as deep as classical music. I thought it was all amazing. And, um, and I, I think that sometimes people become more conscious of genre when they grow up in a city or a school system that has the jazz program, you know, and then you play in the jazz band. It's like, okay, that's jazz, you know. I didn't even call it that, you know. I, don't, I didn't call it anything. I, um, and then in college when I started studying theory and then classical um, composing, um, the jazz composers that I became really attracted to were the ones that brought in, I mean, I loved Thad Jones and I loved lots of things the Basie band played and all sorts of things. But I really loved that Bob Brookmeyer's music had long form development in it, which most jazz didn't. Most jazz was theme and variations, you know, a tune. And then Gil Evans had all this transparency and beautiful orchestration. It never just felt like a big band with the trumpets, the trombones, and the saxes playing in sections. You know, it wasn't like that. Even when he wrote, you know, in the, in the 40s, Claude Thornhill stuff, it was like just orchestrationally, it just was beautiful. It, yeah, you would call it jazz, but somehow it, it crossed boundaries. And, you know, likewise, I always loved classical composers that somehow seemed to cross boundaries too, like Ravel, you know, and, and I loved Hindemith. I don't know, because that also sometimes the harmony and everything felt like, I remember talking with Billy Childs one time about Hindemith and I started talking about four temperament, the four temperaments, and he like sat at my piano and just started playing it. <laughs> it was like, oh my God, you know, he, but he loves Hindemith too. And I don't know. Um, yeah, I've just always been, and, and then also world music, you know, but for me, Brazilian music and flamenco music, I always really loved. And without trying, and, and also Peruvian music, without trying, when I listened to those things, little things slipped in. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to try to create a hybrid. You know, I never really was that big a fan of third stream music because somehow it felt consciously that it was trying to bring together jazz and classical. Mm -hmm. And whereas to me, Gil Evans just felt like he did it naturally. Even George Russell with like jazz in the space age and New York, New York somehow had something of both. It was a little more in the jazz thing that Gil Evans, but still, you know, um, yeah, I don't know. I, th I think uh, just by nature, because you wrote that classical orchestra, well, not classical, that orchestra thing, but it had a classical feeling to it, you know, and I could hear that it was very organic, you know, it didn't feel like you were trying to put on your classical hat now, you know, it was like, wow, this feels really like you are somebody who has both worlds kind of inside of you. I, I could hear that pretty quickly. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. I remember um, the, the last time we had talked, you had asked me about it and I didn't really know what to say. And 
then I thought like, okay, well, how did, how did I actually, how did I come to, to be the, the way that I am, I guess. And um, I realized that I probably, you know, there are probably a bunch of things that we have done that's, you know, as individuals that like other people just haven't, and you don't really think of it as something that's unique to you or even, and it probably isn't, but one example is that I would go to sleep listening to like certain pieces and just like have them playing, you know, presumably while I was sleeping the whole time. And a lot of times they weren't, I've, I've been listening to orchestral music, I don't know, as long as I, for as long as I can remember and consciously made the choice to, to listen to music. And so one piece that I remember going to sleep with was um, Petrushka, Stravinsky's Petrushka. And I also listened to a lot of Ravel and, and all the meantime I was listening to, you know, Coltrane and, and stuff like that kind of during the day um, and just trying to listen to as much music as I can. Though all the time I, I feel like there's just this boundless kind of you know, amount of music that I still feel like I haven't scratched the surface of. It's um, impossible. There's so much music out there. Yeah. And, but I think, yeah, if you listen to all that music and if you love it, you almost can't help that it all just comes into your system. Seems and it'll, it'll come out in whatever. Um, and, and it will be unique because your choices will be something, you know, your influences and what you've done in your listening and also just in your life and your perspective, your visual perspectives from photography or whatever, and your experience in life with friends, family, the landscape. Like for me, I think the landscape of where I'm from really plays into my music, the openness of it. Um, and I don't think we can much help those things. And I don't think we should want to help those things, you know. Mm -hmm. so, so, I was just going to say, sometimes I feel like in jazz, um, everybody becomes so kind of uber interested in trying to do more, hmm. more intrigue, more intense rhythms, more metric modulations, more, you know, faster things, intensity. And I don't think we get to ourselves through that. Maybe it can be through that maximalism kind of thing, but I think that, um, Finding the next great thing isn't often done through trying to do more, but it's just in just letting go and sometimes in your choices of space and, mm. you know, it's, it's really to me, it comes down to your individual choices. And I think the big mark in you being you, me being me and the next person being the next person is when you really when you sit down, you really say, what do I want for this music? As opposed to, what do I think I should do? Like, I wonder, what should I do? You know, as opposed to, what do I want? You know, and when you go for, what do I want? As opposed to looking for permission of what a teacher or, you know, an audience might want or what you think it should be if you were good, you know? Um, isn't, isn't, isn't the road to finding your, your best success.
Um, I, I'd like to kind of switch gears here um, and talk a little bit more about the concept and part of the message uh, behind Data Lords. And um, I know that you've been, you've, you've written a, a series of open letters to, to Google, right? Uh, yeah, or about Google. Two well, people, but yeah. Um, and about, you know, the way in which they manipulate and, and um, kind of mine people's data and in a way in which, you know, we don't even necessarily realize how much we're really kind of giving of ourselves that we're kind of giving away. So um, I guess I want to know, you know, how do you see, how do you see things going forward? I mean, how do you see yourself going forward? How do you see us? Uh, it's a big kind of loaded question, but like, you know, we have to believe that we can kind of make this better in some way. And I think that's part of the reason why, um, why this album exists is because it's kind of like, hey, you know, we have to, um, people need to kind of know that they're not alone in the feelings of trying to balance all these things. So, um, yeah, I think it, it, um, it, the change will happen if people wake up to the reality of what is really happening. And I think a big reality, and it started with music, is this concept that of luring people to, in all big data companies, luring people to use their product or platform or whatever it is, Amazon or Google, through offering free stuff. Hmm. And I think that, you know, um, a lot of this is being looked at now by, um, through antitrust. You know, there was this big tech titans um, thing with, with Congress, you know, asking really tough questions to Google and Facebook and Amazon and Apple, I guess. Um, and, you know, music was the first, you know, put all the, let, allow everybody in the world to put music and it, YouTube wasn't originally started by Google. It was been bought by Google. Um, and, and the idea was letting anybody put up any music and then users would come there and listen to that music or in movies or whatever. And as they're there, these company, you know, Google in this case now is scouring that data hmm. and, and there's a bargain, you know, to me, it's like a sort of a Faustian bargain that we're making there in thinking that it's so great to now have free music. But what I believe, and I think people will come to realize, hopefully not too late, but I feel like it is getting very late in the game, is that the cost of free is actually more, even in dollars and cents, mm than it would be if we actually paid for those things. So I'll give you some different examples. So in the old days when we bought music from a record store or if somebody buys through my website, they pay sales tax, right? The sales tax um, goes to, you know, social programs, maybe um, 
roads, schools, I don't know how, you know, in different states, it's divvied up in different ways. Or if you bought something in the store, a tremendous amount of sales tax um, went into the system. When you get something for free, it's not really free because it's, it's really what it is, is a barter. You're getting to, there's still an exchange. You get the music, like normally you buy my music, you, you give me money, I give you my music. And then there's a sales tax event, okay? Now, I'm, say I'm Google. I give you the music, you know, and you give me your data, but it's not being taxed. And this thing, this barter agreement, under the current tax laws should be taxed. They just aren't recognizing it as such. So there's a huge loss there. Then there's the loss to the small businesses. The small, even like Bed Bath & Beyond, which wasn't a small business, was put out of largely, you know, they're, they're, they are largely destroyed by the fact that Amazon is collecting data. And Bed Bath & Beyond, when you go to the store, they're not. And so this thing of we can give you things cheaper because we get your data, or we'll give you this free in-home system, the, what are those different things called, you know? I think it's Alexa or something. Alexa and all that, you know, Alexa and Google has one. I don't know, is it Google Home or I forget what they're all called. I would never over my dead body would I have one of those in my home. But they give them away practically for free because of what they get. Yeah. Um, other things we bought, you know, in-car navigation systems is a, is a good one. You know, it's like what we all spent on, on GPS systems. Now you have Google Maps. Yeah. Why is Google Maps free? Because they're getting your data. Yeah. And so these companies get more and more powerful. And in the meantime, all these other people that had businesses and things. So what is going to happen where our, okay, there's no tax, sales tax anymore on all those things we used to buy. And they're not taxing the barter as they should. And then all these small businesses that can exist. And now we have musicians. I've asked many young musicians, how are you paying for your record? Because you're putting it on Spotify and you're not going to make any money. You know that. Oh, well, we barter our services. Okay, so what happens when, when I pay my band? You know, I pay Steve Wilson and I pay, you know, Ryan Keberly and Marshall Jilks and everybody. They get a check and then they pay taxes on that. Now we have, because the music it doesn't pay anything, now you got musicians all bartering their services. So again, the whole tax system is crumbling. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's, you could play this out in so many different ways. And I think people have to start realizing that free is not free. And these companies that push their free on us, that the value of the data is actually way more than what we used to pay when we bought things. And I think that when we used to buy things and pay for them, we appreciated them a lot more. I think we all savored music much more when we couldn't just like, you know, just gorge on everything, a little of this and that, but you would, 
bring home a bag of albums, you know, and you'd be like, oh, I'm so excited to listen. And every once in a while you were like, oh, I'm not going to listen to that again. But then you'd, there'd be another one you'd love. And you'd listen to it again and again, and you'd sniff it, you know, you'd sniff that album. <laughs> well, that's funny because when I first opened this, it was like it reminded me, it made me feel like I was in a library or something like that, especially with the book, you know, being the way that it was. It's, and the fact that it's not, it's like a matte print, which yeah. I wasn't necessarily expecting, but I, it was, it just made me feel like it was, yeah. So, so open, open it up once, just hold it up and open it up, and I'll tell you what, not now open it further yeah and then that thing in the middle that pulls out with the mm -hmm. with the moon and everything so my wish for this album was that it would make people feel like we felt when we bought albums albums were such an experience you know and we would read the liner notes and we would listen to the music and like i say there were no distractions so you would be fully immersed in the visual and the sonic world of the album. And so, you know, there's a picture of Stoney in there somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> the little, the, the uh, pottery stone. But I was trying to give that experience, you know? And I actually, when I first got the albums and I smelled them, I'm like, oh good, it's got a little bit of that yeah, thing smell. <laughs> oh gosh, you know, it's a, it's a weird world now with music, you know? I had, I had somebody say to me in an interview today, well, you know, it was always bad with the record companies. It was just a kind of, they took advantage of artists and it was so bad. And I said, yeah, it was very different though. Because in those days, the record companies were taking on the financial risk. So, you know, they, so if you, you know, if a record company signed you, they paid for the record. Now, if you sold a lot, you'd be pissed because you're, you're, a lot of the money that you'd feel you should make is paying for those other records. But if your, if your album was very, you know, avant-garde and didn't sell that much and didn't really pay for it, but they had you on their label because of the quality of your music, realizing it's going to be paid for by some of the others, you'd be pretty happy because you didn't have to take the loss. Mm -hmm. And to me, there was an overall thing that was, better for the music even though yes they were, were greedy and they went too far but now as you know we're all paying for our own records most of us even those on labels with almost a zero chance of making our money back yeah i've found a way to do it through artist share but most people are just putting their music up on you know spotify or other services yeah, and using, you know, GoFundMe or something like that. To... Well, go, yeah, and GoFundMe helps them to, um, yeah, raise their money. And it does, but, you know, how many times can you go back to people for that? Yeah. And, and, you know, that's part of the reason with Artishare, I always try to give people way more than they that were expecting or would have gotten in terms of the package, in terms of the extra content because I don't want people feeling like I'm coming to them for a handout, you know? And I like the fact that um, I had purchased, you know, a few other things over the years and those are still like, I can still look at and, and listen to all of that 
material as well, you know, with the, with my login information and stuff. And I, mm -hmm. I'm not entirely sure. I would imagine that all those other kinds of um, services, that's not really the way that they, they don't have that in mind, that kind yeah. of. Yeah, no. Connection no. That you talked about, you know, right at the beginning. So, um, but I, uh, so unfortunately I have this room reserved. And, all right. Uh, about four o'clock and I'm afraid they're going to try and kick me out. So okay. I don't want to have to sign off in the middle of a okay. and stirring dialogue. But um, is there anything that you would like to leave us with before we sign off or? Um, well, just on this subject of music and people handling their music, I think it's really, really important for people that are starting out and trying to figure out how to put their music out there not falling for the thing of I've got to get my music out there to as many people as possible. Um, I'm running into this right now in terms of my my album and dealing with publicity because now many radio stations they all want to stream the music mm. and on one hand you know my radio publicist will say well that's isn't that what we're here for to get your music out there and I say no, not exactly, because I would rather have 10,000 truly dedicated fans than 2 million people that love my music, that listen to it free everywhere, and I can't afford to make my records. Hmm. If I have 10,000 people and I'm making, you know, a 20 to $25 profit on each one, that's hmm. 200 to $250,000, you know, that's almost a quarter of a million dollars as opposed to two million fans on Spotify for a couple of months is nothing. Mm -hmm. You know, really, it's, it's almost nothing. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think it's really important. So I did finally succumb to putting, I think, five tunes on Spotify. But I put up an album that's my four like album a covers. Like it's, it's, so it's like a sampler. And I do think, you know, just to help people know this is, this music is there and then they can see and hopefully come to my website to look for it. So I think people have to really think how to preserve their own marketplace. Like, because ultimately your music and everybody at Miami and everybody who's starting out, you know, they have to figure out how financially they're going to make this thing work. And you, by just giving it away, just so that your ego can be stroked, that people like you, you have to understand maybe that will fit into your goals and your business plan. But it's important to have a plan and try to figure out how you can monetize what you do. And part of that also is being aware of the things that are happening and advocating and being conscious writing to your elected leaders about things, you know, if, if the, uh, you know, the antitrust stuff is happening, write to your senator and say, I watched it. It's really important to me as a musician. You know, I've sold my stuff on Amazon. I know how much money they take. I know how hideous they can be for shipping, you know, and usurious. And, you know, and if people start, you know, um, expressing how they feel, 
you know, then our elected leaders will reflect that more and more. But if we just throw up our hands and say, oh, cat's out of the bag, there's nothing we can do, you know. Might as well. You might as well give it up. This isn't how, this isn't how, you know, revolutions are, are won, you know. So this has to be kind of a revolution, you know, amongst creators. And it's important. It's important for our livelihoods, but on, in a broader sense, it's important for the music. I, I read an article today that in the UK, I think it's 64% of the people are thinking about leaving the music profession. Wow. 64%, you know? If you can't make a living out of music, okay, there's gonna be a few people that are gonna do it anyway and just live in squalor. But, you know, a lot of great, music won't be made because people are going to be like, you know, I, I want to have a family or I, you know, I, I don't want to live like that. I want to have health insurance. So, so everybody has to be smart about how they go about their profession and, and they have to, we have to all start advocating. It's, there's, there's going to be no other way. Get educated and start speaking up for ourselves. Okay, well, thank you so much. There's, there's so much that I feel as though, um, you know, all of those listening uh, needed to, to hear. And um, I'm just incredibly grateful for the time that we've had. And um, I want to thank everyone for listening to this episode of the Frost Sessions. And um, I hope to See you again soon, hopefully in October. Yeah, we'll see you in October. Thank you so much. It's great to talk with you too. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, Michael.